Well, good evening. Thank you for being here. We have been walking through Exodus, and we are now in Exodus chapter 5. So let's take a minute and let's pray together, and then we'll jump right into the passage. God, we just thank you for tonight. Thank you that we get to be here with you, that we get to be here together. We declare tonight you're worthy of worship. You deserve it. And we worship you not just in song, but we worship you as we get into your word. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would change us, and then help us to worship you with our lives as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So here we are, Exodus chapter 5, and uh, we're going to read chapter 5, verse 22, and then we're going to go to 627, which is a huge passage and has a genealogy in it, so that should be a good time, right? <laughs> we're going to read a lot of names that I can't pronounce, so you're going to have an opportunity to laugh at me um, tonight, along with my uh, bad choice in a sweater, um, as my daughter pointed out, because of the horizontal stripes. This is not, uh, this is not wisdom for me, um, but here we are, having issues with the iPad. All right, 522. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why, do you, why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you as an outstretched arm. I'm sorry, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am, uns I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses. The son of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, 
Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal. I'm, I'm doing it. The son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Labini, and Shimi. By their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Ijar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahal, Mushi, sorry. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife someone, his father's sister. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zitri. The sons of Uziel. Mike gave me this just to listen to me read it. Mishael and the other one. I know, it's the Bible. Aaron took as his wife, I skipped one, sorry, the daughter of someone else and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nabdib, Abihu, Elazar, and someone else. The sons of Korah, Asher, Elkan, and this other dude. These are the clans of Korites. I'm going to go down to verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the... This is important. These are the... It's all important, but... These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out of the people of Israel from the land Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. And really you see that the, the genealogy has meaning in their world and it has meaning in the way that they document and understand things. And I think as Moses is writing this, it's important to understand that it's this Moses and it's this Aaron who spoke to Pharaoh. And we see that from the genealogy that I just terribly read. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that. But let's, let's just take a look at this. We see here from last week when Mike was speaking that, that Moses as we've, as we've walked through Exodus, has heard from God, and he's heard that God is going to deliver his people, and that God's called him to, to prophetically speak, not just to Pharaoh, but to also speak to the people about what God's going to do. And we see that Moses does that. He goes to the people and he says, listen, God's going to deliver you from this slavery and from this bondage. And, and you remember their response? They're like, all right, great. And, and they're excited. And then Moses goes to Pharaoh and he speaks to him and he says, let, let the people go to a festival for three days. And he goes to Pharaoh in hopes that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And we see not just stubbornness from Pharaoh, which was the expectation, but we also see that Pharaoh has retribution on the people. He says, who is the Lord? I don't know this Lord. Who is this God that you speak of? I don't know him. Why would I listen to him? And he turns to the people of Israel, and he says, you know what? You're lazy. And he increases the burden on their slavery. He has them making bricks without straw. They've got to find their own straw, and, and, and yet does not change the number that they must reach in terms of their quota of brick making. And, and I don't know exactly what that meant, but it seems to have been harsh. And, and the people begin to groan. 
and they become discouraged and they become upset and they, 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 they in turn send the foremen, the people that are in charge of the work crews of the people of Israel, they go to Moses and they're like, hey, what's the deal? And they, and they, they charge Moses and they blame Moses and they say, Moses, you've done this to us. What's going on? Why have you been this way towards us that you would cause things to be more difficult? I thought we were going to be delivered. And Moses, what does he do? I love this. As we see in chapter 5, verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord. Then Moses turned to the Lord. You see, we saw last week that the people of Israel, when things got harsh and things got difficult, and when the bondage of their slavery became even more burdensome, even though they had heard from Moses that God was going to deliver them, when things got tough, they turned who? They turned to Pharaoh. And they went to Pharaoh and they're like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Can you help us out? Why are you doing this to us? They turned to the person who was causing the slavery and causing the bondage and, and requested help of him because they didn't, for whatever reason, they didn't turn to the Lord. But we see as the foremen have come to Moses and charged him with, what have you done? Why have you done this to us? Moses turns to the Lord and he takes his discouragement to God and he goes into a private place with God and he looks to God and he becomes very honest. How many of you guys have ever been there before where you've had those honest moments with God? Like, what? What in the world? And you see Moses turn to God. And in verse 22, he charges God that you've brought trouble upon these people. God, why have you brought trouble to these people. I thought you were going to deliver them. I thought you were going to make things right. I thought you were going to make things better. And now all we've done is caused them more trouble. And hey, by the way, they're blaming me, right? Can you see his, his burden here? Can you see his complaint as he turns to the Lord? And you see this, um, that, that Moses in this case has, has gone to God and he's attributed the, the ultimate result here to God. He's basically said, God, you're the ultimate cause of what's happening here to these people. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to these people, and you've not delivered them at all. So Moses turns to God in his discouragement, and he says, Why did you do this? What are you doing? And you see here something similar, almost like Jeremiah. Am I doing that, Bill? I'm sorry. I can bend this thing. Almost like Jeremiah. If you remember the book of Jeremiah, God had called Jeremiah the prophet to go speak to the people of Israel, and none of them listened to him. And he spoke with a prophetic voice, and they completely ignored him for his entire prophetic career. No one ever listened to the guy. What an incredible burden. And in, in, in the same vein, he turned to God in his discouragement. He says, God, did you deceive me? And you see Moses here going to God. Well, what are you doing? And it's not as if uh, Moses or Jeremiah, in the context of the language used in this passage, are accusing God of wrongdoing. That's not what he's doing. But what you see here is Moses saying, God, what are you doing and can you let me in on it? Right? God, why can't you just let me in on the fact that it wasn't going to go how I thought it was going to go? God, I expected Pharaoh to be stubborn, but I did not expect the retaliation upon the people, that, that there would be a greater burden upon, upon the people, and I'd be in this situation. And so you see Moses is turning to God and, and saying, God, you're the ultimate cause of this. What is going on? Why are you doing this? 
Look in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I want to take some time and I want to talk about that. There's something that uh, Doug Stewart from the commentary on Exodus, I want to quote him. He says this, and I thought it was very telling in relationship to this conversation between Moses and God. God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations. Isn't that true? God's idea of hardships that we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. There's a perspective issue here. See, Moses is going to God and in his human expectations, God, you said you're gonna deliver the people. You said you were gonna do this. Now they're ticked off. Now they're blaming me and I'm coming to you, God, saying, God, why did you do this to these people? And you see that Moses is writing this hindsight, isn't he? Moses is writing the book of Exodus because this Exodus that we recognize and that we know the story to is is a landmark. This Exodus is an anchor for the people of Israel that they can hold to throughout their history to say, yes, God made good on his word and God did what he said he was gonna do. We sang the song of Moses as the people sang when they got to the other side of the Red Sea after he split the body of water and they walked through on dry ground and then the water came crashing in on the Egyptian army and they sang the song of Moses and so as Moses writes this passage he's telling on himself he's in essence explaining to them his impatience in the moment with God's timing but this is a moment of faith right this is a moment the exodus is is an anchor for the people of God throughout history to say God does what he said he's going to do and so here's Moses in the moment in the moment of difficulty, in the moment of frustration, in the moment of great hardship, he's telling on himself. In essence, he's talking about the idea that that God's timing isn't exactly what he himself expected it to be. Uh, Gosh, I, I can't even begin to articulate all the ways that this practically applies to our lives, doesn't it? I mean, how many times have we been in the midst, have I been in the midst of hardship and of difficulty and of of things things getting bad? And I've turned to God and said, God, what are you doing? I've I've turned to turned to sometimes not God, but I've turned almost like the people of Israel did in this moment to Pharaoh in my life. I've turned to the things that have kept me in bondage to my own sin. In in essence, to aid myself in feeling better about the difficult situation that I'm in instead of relying on God and who he is and what he said. And so here we see Moses turning to God in discouragement. God answers Moses. I love God's answer. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Look at this. I love this because God here charges, or Moses charges God with, why have you done this to these people? Why have you let, not let me in on what it is you're doing and your timing? And God responds to him, not by explaining himself. Does he? He doesn't respond to him by saying, oh, I'm sorry, here's what I meant. He doesn't explain himself to Moses. He responds to Moses by saying, 
do you know who you're talking to? I am God Almighty. Remember who I am. Not only am I El Shaddai, as I've revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not only am I God Almighty, but I've revealed to you even more of who I am than I ever revealed to them. I am that I am. I am the God that always was and always will be. I wasn't even created. I've been forever. I am that I am. I'm God Almighty, and I am the I am. Remember who I am. Isn't that a powerful response to Moses' inquiry about, God, what are you doing in my life? Remember who I am. I am God Almighty. Amen? No matter what you're going through tonight, no matter where you are in your life or what hardship or emotion you face, listen, so much of what we do is governed by our discouragement and emotions, isn't it? I know how discouragement and how emotion and how difficulty and how hardship can come to play into the life of a person and begin to adjust our responses to things and to begin to adjust our behavior. And there needs to be many times a recalibration, does there not? There needs to be many times as Moses experiences in this conversation with God an adjustment of perspective because God, emotionally, I'm discouraged. Things are going poorly. I don't know what to do or where to turn. And God looks to him and says, I am the Lord God Almighty. Remember who I am. What a powerful statement to us. When does, you know, doesn't it seem many times that when God has promised deliverance, discouragement gets darker before it gets brighter? Does it not? I, I always think of the, the story of Lazarus, right? Where you see they come to him and they're like, hey, Lazarus is dying. And Jesus is like, okay, I'll be there in a couple days. And it's like, what? What do you mean a couple days? <laughs> He's dying now. And what do we recognize from this narrative? And what do we recognize from Lazarus? That, God, that delay doesn't mean denial. That, that God's timing very seldom coincides with our timing. That what we want on our human, small, linear level to, to see happen, God is so much bigger and so much more amazing and so much more sovereign in control that we don't get it. Isn't, it. isn't it a good thing that we don't get it? Because if we understood God, we'd be bigger than him, right? But God is the Lord God Almighty. He is beyond us. His timing doesn't always make sense to us. We don't always understand why something's happening. But here's what we can understand from the word of God. Here's the truth that we can bank our lives on and stand on. Even in the moments that we don't understand, we know who he is. And we know that he does. Amen? He knows what's going on. And we can trust him. He's a good God. He is the Lord God Almighty. He reminds Moses who he is. Jesus shows up, right? And Lazarus is dead. And the sisters are crying. And we know what happens. Delay doesn't necessarily mean denial. His timing doesn't necessarily coincide with ours. And many times our discouragement gets darker before it gets brighter. So here's what we can know from who God has revealed himself to be in scripture when it's getting really tough, when the discouragement is getting really dark, when it seems like you have nowhere else to go, hold on and know who he is 
and that he will do what he said he's going to do. Why? Because that's who he is. Amen? So he reminds Moses of his name. I am Yahweh. Remember, I am who I am. I haven't changed. We, we, we see here that he's revealed now a pretty important aspect of himself for the first time in Scripture, that, that he to Moses has revealed himself as the I am. And to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he re- revealed himself as El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty, but now he is I am that I am. He, it's an even greater name that encompasses the former name. And he, he begins to call Moses back to remember who he is. He declares his name to him. We see in verse 4 that he reminds Moses of, of the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reminds him that, listen, I am the Almighty God. I am the I am. And I made a promise through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. And that promise now that I made is being made good in you and we see the promise in genesis that promises that the people of god will inhabit this land flowing with milk and honey and now he's making good on the promise that he made to his people and he's doing it now through moses and he's saying remember who i am remember my covenant remember my promise and i am going to do what i said i was going to do i'm going to make good on my covenant what does this mean about god what does this tell us in scripture about who god is as he's revealed himself to be in scripture. I I love this because as we look at this name that he declares, as we look at this reminder that he gives to Moses, we see some things about who God is. We know this, that he is a God who cannot be stopped in his purposes. God is the almighty God. He is the the I am. And when he has purpose to do something, nobody can stop him, not even Pharaoh, right? What would be the temptation in this moment if you put yourself in their place? Pharaoh's almighty, right? Pharaoh is a self-declared God. Pharaoh, in essence, rules the world. Pharaoh has immediate control over their circumstances and how they feel and how much they work and how much they eat and whether they live or die. Pharaoh seems to have control over their lives. And what God is beginning to show them through his prophet Moses is he's trying to show them, look, I know that in your minds, Pharaoh seems like the Almighty, but he is nothing compared to me. And when I say I'm going to do something, Pharaoh can't even slightly get in my way. Amen? I love this. It it almost reminds me of this conversation with Job. Remember the conversation with Job? Where he had lost everything. He had lost absolutely everything, and Job turns to God like, what the heck, right? I almost threw out one of those texting, never mind. And so, but Job looks to God like, what in the world? And God responds with, who are you? Were you there when I made everything? How could the, how could the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? And here's this conversation with Moses that I think is a little less harsh, but he says to Moses, this is who I am. Remember who I am. I think that's important for us, amen? So what does this mean about God? He cannot be stopped in what he purposes to do. He does whatever he pleases, and we see that in Psalm 15, 3. And his power is superior to all others' power in the universe. You know, whatever you're facing today, there are things that seem to have 
great control in our lives. There are things in our lives that, that really affect us day to day, that affect our emotion, that affect our well-being, that affect um, whether it be our health, whether it be our circumstance, whether it be our finances, whether it be our marriages and relationships. Um, there are so many things that come into play in our lives. And as we seek to navigate life in the midst of this sinful world, there's something to remember, that God's in control and he is the I am, amen? I mean, think about it. This is the God that, that, that Steven Weinberg, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, said that however billion years ago an explosion occurred and in three minutes, 90% of all the matter that would ever exist came into being, right? And that, that's the idea of the Big Bang. And we see in Genesis chapter one, verse three, that the God that we're speaking of spoke let there be light, and boom, an explosion occurred, and everything came into being. This is the God we're talking about. This is the God that spoke a word, and 100,000 light years worth of universe showed up. It came into existence upon a word from his mouth. He spoke, and everything came into existence. This is the God of the universe who created the stars of the heavens, the sun, the earth, everything that's ever been created, God created with the spoken word. And this is a God that's covenanted with you, who loves you, and who has delivered you. What circumstance, what person could be in your life that he isn't in control of and sovereign over? And this is what God is revealing to his people. I don't know if you remember this. I know you've been in Egypt for a long time. But I made a promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I told them, I'm the Lord God Almighty. And I'm telling you that I am the I am. And I know you've spent all this time in Egypt thinking Pharaoh was the big guy on campus who controlled your lives. But he is nothing in comparison to me. And when I say I'm going to deliver you, I don't care how many bricks he makes you make. I'm going to deliver you because that's who I am. And I love what he says in the end of chapter five, soon Pharaoh will know who I am. And he's about to show him. Amen? Moses' discouragement. God responds with describing who he is. God answers Moses. He doesn't explain himself. He references his original promise in chapter 3, verse 19. We see in 319 that God said, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Here's verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. Here's what we recognize about who God is. With a strong hand, he's going to do this. Pharaoh's gonna be stubborn, but God's bigger, and he has a strong hand, and he will make him do it. Amen? I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He reminds them of who he is. Now, what does it mean for us that he is who he says he is? We see that he is a God who cannot be stopped. We see he's a God that when he outstretches his arm and with mighty acts of judgment, he imposes his will on anybody, including Pharaoh. And we see that he's a God whose power is superior to every other power in the universe. But what does this mean for us? Well, how should we respond to who God is? Well, we should respond differently than the people of Israel do here, right? The people of Israel still haven't, haven't, haven't turned, and we see at the end of this passage, they say to Moses, yeah, sorry, it's too tough. But how should we respond to who God is? First, I think there, that we should respond with reverence. We, we should respond to God with reverence. As he spoke to Job, how could the potter say, how could the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? We should, we, should, we should think of God and understand who he is in a way that he's revealed himself to be in scripture. Meaning, listen, God's not your pal. God's not your sidekick. God's not your grandpa. God is the almighty God, amen? There should be a reverence as we look at scripture to who God is. He is in control. He's sovereign. He is a gigantic amazing God, and he is so zealously loving that he sent his son to die for us, to fulfill his wrath and to fulfill his judgment. But he's a God that we should have reverence towards. What does that mean, reverence? You know, John Piper says it this way. It's admiration and fear. It's awe and dread. It's wonder and terror. I think in the, in the, in the scope of, of an awesome God, of the almighty God, the I am. We should respond to who he is with reverence. I think that's a big deal because many times in our sin, and I recognize this in my own life, it's difficult. We become prideful. I remember growing up as a young man thinking that I knew what was best for my life, right? How many of you guys were ever there? I remember having an idea of what I was gonna do with my life. I'm gonna be this, I'm gonna be that. I was gonna, I think my big plans in the, you know, the brain between my ears was I'm gonna be a gym teacher and I'm gonna hang out and play sports and be a wrestling coach and that was what I wanted to do with my life. And there came a moment in my life where, where I collided with this, this reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I remember as a teenager thinking to myself, okay, if this is real, if this is true, if this church thing I've been experiencing is real, I, I better look into it. And there came a day through the grace of God that I recognized that God was smarter than me. This is a great revelation in the life of a human being. That I should have reverence and deference towards the Almighty. That if he made me, he knows what he made me for. 
That when he tells me to do something, even though I don't like it or I don't think it's right, or in the midst of my own desire for comfort and selfishness and pride, I want to go my own way, there, there needs to be a reverence. There needs to be a recognition that not only does he love me and not only does he save me, but my life in response to the gospel should be a life of obedience to a great and awesome, powerful God who knows way more than I do. Loving God is obeying him. Loving God is responding by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the grace of God to what he's called me to do. And I know sometimes we sit in our lives and in amongst our families and amongst our workplace and we say, well, the way that God declares that he thinks about life, the, the creator of all of life, the way he thinks about life and what's best for human flourishing, that's not really popular now. Bill Maher may, may, might make fun of me. Can I tell you something? He is the I am. He's the great God. It doesn't matter what our culture says now. It matters what he says. And he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And he's been doing it through all of creation. And his plan of redemption will come to pass. He will make all things right. Amen? Amen. And we should have reverence and deference towards him. I look to the day when he makes all things right. He's positionally done it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moses is a type, he's a symbol, he's an example of the deliverance of God, but the deliverance of God has come through who? Jesus Christ, amen? He came and he has set us free from the worst bondage and slavery, and that's sin. And he's declared us in Romans 3 as not guilty, as just, not because we've done anything, but because he did it, and he paid the price. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf so we don't have to, amen? Because we couldn't. Isn't that great news? He's delivered us. But there's coming a day when he is going to consummate everything he's already done in Jesus. And he's going to make all things right. And that's going to be an awesome day and a terrible day. There's coming a day when God will do what he said he's going to do because he is the Almighty. And those who have been redeemed, who, who know Jesus, who have, been, who have been given his grace, will have this amazing opportunity to be in the presence of God for eternity. And those who love the darkness, as the Bible says, will get exactly what they love and they'll get exactly what they want. A life in eternity of darkness separated from him because that's what they want. And, and God will do what he said he's going to do. I, I, I got to tell you that that theological understanding is so beyond me. But I look to the day when he makes everything right. I, uh, I've mentioned to you guys a few times in my day-to-day, and actually one of my coworkers here, in our day-to-day we see the devastation of sin in the lives of people. And in my day-to-day, I see the results of a world gone wrong. As I see children tortured and devastated and, and abused, as we see the abuse, and, and for those of you who don't know, I'm a prosecutor in the Special Victims Bureau, and we see uh, in our day-to-day just the devastation of, of what can happen to a human being when sin has gone totally awry and, and self-control is completely absent from the lives of people and they hurt each other and they devastate each other and they ruin each other. And I look to the day when he will make all things right. I can't make it right. Can't fix it. But in his grace and in his judgment, he will. Amen? Because he's a big God and he's in control. We should respond with reverence. We should respond with the understanding 
of recompense, and I think I just mentioned that, to those who are his enemies. The wrath of God is real. I, I see Psalm 73, and if you could turn there for a moment. I've been in this place that the writer in Psalm 73 is in. And you see him here admiring those who have no concern for God. And he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. Listen to this. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me wearisome task. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them on a slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like the beast toward you. God will make things right. And we see here that God is about to show Pharaoh who he is. And you see this in Psalm 73. You see the, the man who, who was close to David and David had fallen with Bathsheba and you see him write this and, and he says, there, there came a moment that I was, I was jealous of the wicked. I was jealous of the arrogant. I was jealous of those who hate God. And I kept thinking, how come they're so well-fed, fat? How come they're so doing well? How come no, nothing ever bad seems to happen to them? And then I love this little transition moment. He says in verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of the Lord, I got into the presence of God and my perspective shifted and then I saw their end. Every step may be their last. They're walking as if they're on a slippery rock and they could fall any minute. God, your judgment is real and you have rescued me from it. Can I tell you that God is going to make things right and he has delivered you. His gospel is available. He loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son as the great deliverer to pay the price for us. There is no reason for me to wake up envious of those. You hear, you hear the psalmist, he says, have I kept my heart clean in vain? Me serving God, is it all in vain? They look like they're doing so well. But when he came into the sanctuary of God, his perspective shifted and he realized my walking my foot is secure because he holds me and every step they take is like on a slippery rock and it could be their last his perspective shifted god will make it right god will do what he said he's going to do and nobody can get in his way amen 
What else do we know about God? What does this mean for us, his name? He's our refuge. The God who loves me and gave himself for me is almighty. He is infinite in power. And he is not, listen to this, he's not a refuge from all suffering, but from ultimate defeat. You hear that tonight? He is a refuge from suffering, but it's not that we will not encounter suffering. We see the people of Israel encounter greater suffering even after his promise of deliverance. And what he's saying is, listen, you're going to go through stuff, right? But you're never gonna go through it alone. And you're gonna know that he will ultimately win. He's a refuge from ultimate defeat. You can hang on. You can walk through anything. You can walk through sickness. You can walk through difficulty. What is the, what is, how does the Christian who's been redeemed by God display the glory of God to people who don't know him? How do we do it? We go through hard times differently. It's not that we don't go through them. I sit here, Dave, and I'm sorry. I, I see you, and your, your family is such a shining example of how to walk through difficulty and demonstrate for us what the grace of God really means in Scripture. Amen? I see that in my, in my friend Jordan. I see it in you, Davis. Both of them lost their wives to cancer. And he, he's told his story to us. And, and, and Jordan has shared his story with us as we walk through it in the beginnings of planting Missio Church. And what I began to realize as I watched these two men and their families walk through this is that I've read about grace. I've seen what grace says in the Bible. But they've demonstrated the glory of God to me and what grace really means in the way they walk through something I can't even imagine. And God held them and their families up. And they got to the other side, just like the people of Israel get to the other side here. And it's become that moment, right? It is that Exodus moment where they say, if I could do this, if God sustains me through this, he will sustain me through anything. Amen? There's nothing I can face that God's not big enough to handle and sustain me through. He's our refuge. God will deliver them from Egypt like he promised. And he'll deliver you from sin like he promised through Jesus Christ. Amen? So what is our circumstance today that we face? What is the question we have that's similar to the people of Israel in this moment? What are our lives about? What do we recognize about the doctrine of sin in our bondage? That we're bound in sin? That we have... uh, that we have a a will because of the fall that's bent towards selfishness, that's bent towards pride, that's bent towards destruction. Me left unto myself, I will choose wrongly. I will choose to only benefit myself. I will choose my own comfort, my own satisfaction, my own self above everything else because in sin, that's what I'm bent to do. And, And ultimately, I deserve, it is justice for me to be separated from God forever. And how could I ever be delivered from that? How could I ever be saved from that? Jesus, God came and he lived the life that I couldn't live. And Jesus, the ultimate deliverer, has died on my behalf as a substitution for me. He paid the price. He experienced separation from God. He hung suspended between heaven and earth, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that I can stand here and say, my God will never leave me or forsake me. The great deliverer 
who Moses is the example of, God has made good on his word. And here's the answer to the question for you. Yes, God will deliver you. Yes, there will come a day when you will die. And you know what? He has defeated death, amen? And you won't be suspended in some limbo. You will immediately, as Corinthians says, be in front of the Father. You will immediately, oh death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? It has been defeated in the cross. And when you stand before God someday, no one will be next to you. Your wife won't be there. Your kids won't be there. Your parents won't be there. You will stand before God. And as I think I've said here before, either your sin will be nailed to you or it'll be nailed to the cross. And if you're in Christ, you'll stand before God and he will look at you and see Jesus and say, you are declared not guilty. Amen? He's delivered us. He will make good on his word and you will see just like they saw, he will do what he said he's gonna do. Amen? Is there anything in light of this that you can face, in light of who God is, that you can't in turn go to him and recognize he's bigger? He's in control. He is the almighty God. He is the I am. Amen? As we, as we continue on in this passage, we see a couple of things. Verses 13 to 27, that this is the Moses and Aaron. He wanted to make sure through this genealogy that it was clearly identified who they were. And we also see, and I guess that kind of sets us up for next week, a little bit of a dramatic pause, right? Almost like a commercial break, but it's not a commercial break. But you see this moment where the people of Israel have rejected Moses' going to them and saying, hey, here's what God said to me about who he is and what he's gonna do. And they say, yeah, we're not having it. And then he breaks and he goes through this genealogy because you know what we're about to see? He's about to launch into the resolution of this story. And you're about to see the plagues. You're about to see God show up and the Pharaoh who turned to Moses and said, who is this Lord? I don't know who he is. He's about to find out who God is, amen? And he's gonna do exactly what he said he's gonna do. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the almighty God, that you are the I am, that you are in control. God, help us to look at this passage in light of our own lives and recognize that you are an awesome God. Help us in the moments where discouragement and emotion takes over our will to scramble back into the sanctuary, to scramble back, as the psalmist wrote, to that place where we're just with you and you remind us of who you are. You remind us that you're in control. You remind us that you're the almighty God and that you love us and that you will deliver us because you've promised and you make good on your promises. We worship you because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, everybody said.